Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Confession of a King. It's based upon the lectionary readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent, March 29th, 2009. Confounding our expectations about how most politicians behave, One of the most eloquent expressions of human contrition comes from one of the most powerful statesmen in Israel's history. An editorial gloss to the music director tells us that Psalm 51 is a song written by King David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Interestingly, the editor does not mention that David also sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front lines of battle to ensure that he would be slaughtered and that Bathsheba would become his. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Listen to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, 1-12 Given that most ancient peoples divinized their kings and sanitized their faults, and that the Hebrews included rather than whitewashed this episode from their sacred history, David's public confession is shocking in its candor. Perhaps it was this candor that led Christians to honor David almost a thousand years later as, quote, a man after God's own heart, Acts 13, 22. David appeals to God's unfailing love and immense compassion for forgiveness of his sins. His language suggests the fixation on his multiple failures. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He admits that he has not only wronged his neighbor and befouled himself, but, more importantly, dishonored God. 
David prays for release from this fixation on his sinful actions, including cleansing, renewed joy, and a steadfast spirit to sustain him amidst the deep discouragement people can feel when hounded by their moral failure. Joan Chittister, a Benedictine nun and author of some 25 books, returns time and again to the themes of personal failure and struggle. One mistake we often make, she suggests, is to accept perfection as our standard or goal. When we imagine that we'll never fail, failure hits the hardest. Perfection is an oppressive standard, and no Christian this side of heaven will ever reach it. The problem, says Chittister, is that we fail. We know ourselves to be weak. We stumble along, being less than we can be, never living up to our own standards, let alone anyone else's. We eat too much between meals. We work too little to get ahead. We drink more than we should at the office party. We're all addicted to something. Those addictions not only cripple us, they convince us that we're worthless and incapable of being worthwhile. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of the worst order because it traps us inside our own sense of inadequacy, of futility, and of failure. David's adultery and de facto murder were regrettable, but they weren't remarkable. Such imperfections are our common lot. <clears throat> In fact, his penitential poem hits at a deeper malady. Not only does David ask forgiveness for his sinful actions, plural, he laments his sinful disposition, singular. Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. While David's sinful actions might be thought of as acute or episodic choices of free will, his inclination to sin results from a chronic and congenital condition. His problem, to draw upon a medical model, is that his sinful inclinations are inherited rather than acquired. This led St. Augustine to his famous diagnosis that when left to ourselves, we human beings are, quote, not able not to sin. And everything we know about human experience confirms this. Knowing that moral failures have their root in an inherited sinful disposition, rather than the other way around as we often and wrongly believe, can be unsettling. As the Trappist monk Thomas Merton observed, quote, the basic and most fundamental problem of the spiritual life is this acceptance of our hidden and dark self with which we tend to identify all the evil that is in us. The perennial temptation at this point, given the insecurities provoked by both admission of failure and the realization of a darker, darker impulse that gave rise to them in the first place, is to deny, rationalize, or engage in a personal makeover. 
This is a natural and understandable reaction, but it gets us nowhere. Every person longs to be loved and accepted for just who they are and where they are. And this is precisely what God offers us. But as Frederick Beekner writes, this is often just what we also fear more than anything else. Little by little we come to accept instead the highly edited version, which we put forth in the hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. And so, true saints are those who realize, like David, just how unsaintly they can be in both action and disposition, and who don't try to pretend otherwise, or put on appearances to mask reality, either to themselves or to others. In addition to honesty and candor about our fallen condition, David points us to another lifelong virtue, the spirit of contrition. We read in Psalm 51:17, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." Contrition does not imply self-hatred or wallowing in failure. David doesn't do either of those. Instead, we seek that place where we view failure as among the best friends of the soul. Rather than chasing unattainable perfection, says Chittister, we should appropriate the sanctifying nature of mistakes. It's a humbling but ultimately liberating notion to believe with St. Augustine that, quote, even, my, even from my sins, God has drawn good. The season of Lent reminds us of the seriousness of the sinful actions we commit and the sinful disposition we inherited that gives rise to those failures. Lent beckons us to candor and contrition. But losing hope is more serious still. Says St. Peter of Damascus in the 12th century, should we fall, we should not despair, and so estrange ourselves from the Lord's love. Let us always be ready to make a new start. If you fall, rise up. If you fall again, rise up again. We get up again, Frederick Beekner suggests, because Christians are, quote, people who have been delivered just enough to know that there's more where that came from and whose experience of that little deliverance that has already happened inside themselves, and whose faith in the deliverance still to happen, is what sees them through the night. And now for further reflection. What do you think St. Augustine means by his phrase, not able not to sin? Number two, Beekner suggests that we edit our image to find greater acceptance. Do you agree? Number three, what does David mean by a broken spirit and heart? Number four, consider the distinction between sinful actions and a sinful disposition. And finally, what does Chittister mean by what she calls the sanctifying nature of mistakes 
and that failure is among the best friends of the soul. For books this week, I review James McPherson, the title Abraham Lincoln, Oxford, Oxford University Press, 2009, just 79 pages long. Among the deluge of books celebrating the 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth on February 12, 1809, a birthday he shares with Charles Darwin, James McPherson has written a reliable guide for a general readership. Several times I thought that this would make great family reading. Among McPherson's many books on the Civil War, his book Battle Cry of Freedom won a Pulitzer Prize. He's the George Henry Davis Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton University. Lincoln was born of illiterate parents. But even as a youngster, and despite numerous odd jobs like rail splitting, he much preferred reading to manual labor. His father thought he was lazy, and for the rest of his life, father and son were estranged. In quick succession, McPherson describes Lincoln's rise to the Illinois legislature, his pronounced melancholy, his marriage to Mary Todd, his lucrative law career adjudicating 200 cases a year, and his ultimate election to the presidency on a Republican ticket whose main plank was the exclusion of slavery. Emancipation, of course, was Lincoln's lodestar, and the Civil War his preoccupation. After his election, and even before his inauguration, seven states seceded and formed the Confederate States of America. Even today, the scale and scope of the Civil War carnage is hard to fathom. McPherson writes, by the end of the war in April 1865, 2.2 million men had fought in Union armies and navies, and about 850,000 had fought for the Confederacy. More than 620,000 of these soldiers and sailors died in the struggle. In Lincoln's mind, secession spelled anarchy. For if a minority could destroy the majority, then America as a United States was a fiction. This created a deep conflict for Lincoln between his personal hatred of slavery and his constitutional obligation to preserve the Union. But his wisdom and steady hand prevailed, and in the end he even wondered if the Civil War was God's judgment on America for the end of slavery. For fuller treatments of Lincoln, slavery, and the Civil War, see David, David Herbert Donald, the title of the book is simply Lincoln from the year 1995, 714 pages. And then the president of Harvard, Drew Gilpin Faust, This Republic of Suffering, New York, not 2008. And then the widely acclaimed new book, perhaps the new gold standard in Lincoln study by Ronald White, Abraham Lincoln, A Biography, Random, 2009, 816 pages.
The book, James McPherson, Abraham Lincoln, 79 pages, Oxford University Press. For film this week, I review Surfwise, a documentary from the year 2007. Dr. Dorian Doc Paskowitz is 85 years old when we meet him in this documentary about his remarkable family. After medical training at Stanford, a respectable career as a physician, two failed marriages, <clears throat> and then a sexcapade around the world, Doc, as he's called, married his third wife, Juliet. They decided on a carefree life of radical nonconformity, centered around surfing. And so, for the next 25 years, they raised nine kids, eight boys and one girl, in a 24-foot RV camper. Daily surfing and very strict diets were compulsory. Formal schooling of any kind was actively prohibited. Money was scarce. Their whimsical lives as vagabonds sounds fun, but Doc's uncompromising idealism and tyrannical ways amounted to physical and emotional abuse, according to interviews with his adult kids. After ten years of bitter acrimony, as the adult kids tried to make their way in the real world with absolutely no preparation for it, the family meets for an emotional reunion in the last part of the film. Even a badly broken family is better than no family, weeps the mother, Juliet. But in fact, this film makes you wonder if that's true. One side note. Jonathan Paskowitz, one of the nine children, helped to produce the film. The title, Surfwise, from the year 2007. And finally this week, for poetry, and in keeping with King David's confession in Psalm 51, we've posted a poem by Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose was the Bishop of Milan. He lived from 340 to 397. Lord Jesus Christ, you are for me medicine when I am sick. You are my strength when I need help. You are life itself when I fear death. You are the way when I long for heaven. You are light when all is dark. You are my food when I need nourishment. A prayer attributed to St. Ambrose of Milan. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 29th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.